Well, to God be the glory. Hey, this is, um, this is Promotion Sunday. Do I have any first time, first or second graders, that this is your first time to be in the big service? Let me see some hands. If this is your first time, first or second grader, to be in the... They've got parents pointing because their, their hands are like... <laughs> their hands coming up, don't reach the top of the chair. Um, hey, welcome. We are, we are, my own son, Michael, is here, his first Sunday. Right here, buddy. Right here, I've got, I'm watching. Um, and so uh, we are so proud to have you guys here. And uh, how many new um, first-time sixth graders do we have here today? Let me see some hands. Their hands don't get, see, now, they're tall enough, but, but because they're sixth graders, they're like, I don't want to draw attention to myself. So it's like, there's a whole bunch of them. I, and, and then um, I also am under the impression that um, our, many of our, the, I, think, I think you guys are here, the, the Brook Hill students, some of you guys are here as well. Um, you guys back there mostly. Thank you guys for being here today. The, um, the, uh, the international students who are at, at Brook Hill come uh, here and there's a bunch of these guys as well and we're proud to have them here and a great opportunity for you to get to interact with people of, uh, from another culture, and uh, I, I highly recommend that. If that's something you want to seek out, let us know um, some of those relationships too. But uh, man, what a, great, um, what a great time. It also means that we had in the area, John, is this right, in the area of 170 kids in the, 165 kids there this morning, so, um, so uh, pray for John uh, and help him, please. See, uh, um, man, what, a, what an exciting day for us, and I'm so glad for you guys. Let me, let me encourage you guys, especially some of you new uh, first and second graders um, who have not been in here before, to, uh, to take notes in the service. Um, and this is true for all of you. you one, you never know when God's going to call on you to teach. Um, and so, uh, man, I, those of you who are teachers will all back me on this. When God calls you to teach, you're going to be thankful for every single note you ever took so that you can steal when you're now having to teach. And so um, you, you want to have that. So I'm going to really encourage you, if you don't take notes, because as we're going to talk about today, not only are we very intentional about the way we, um, the way we lead worship um, that's meant to connect our, our minds and our souls, our hearts, our guts um, together, um, we, we also want this to be an intellectually challenging time. Uh, the, the word, as we're, as we're going to see today, God's word is, is meant to be there. We're, we're an evidence-based faith. Um, we believe what we believe because the evidence leads us to believe that. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that more today. But for that reason, it may be valuable for you, especially to take notes so you can go back later and check into it and, and, and look stuff up and, and see how you feel about some of this kind of stuff and see what you think about some of this kind of stuff. So I really want to encourage that. And then finally, um, this morning it just struck me, so I always want to comment on this. Um, uh, listening to a little a snippet of a podcast this morning that, that John Keeling sent me that uh, um, about men's relationship to the church and how that's struggled for about the last, say, 50 years-ish, maybe a little longer than that. Um, and, and I think over the next few weeks, you're going to hear why, part of why. But um, uh, man, what a, what a cool thing it is not only to see these, um, these awesome, talented ladies up here to lead us in worship on Sunday morning, um, but I think part of why sometimes men feel comfortable here is, whether we know it or not, is because we see these men up on stage leading in worship, um, expressing the talents and gifts that God has given them um, in a way that, uh, that glorifies God, not us, not themselves. And uh, man, that's that's something that's important and, uh, and I, I want to draw attention to. Y'all may not know, uh, guys, but John, um, if you, you may not listen to, to contemporary kind of Christian music, but if you do, you'll hear on the radio, if you're trying to sing with them in your car, you'll recognize they don't write songs today for men to sing. 
Um, those aren't for men. You, you try to sing one and you'll be like screeching out, the, breaking the windows in your car. And I mean, it's, it's, they're not written for men. Um, and so uh, there is, that's, there, John, week after week, lowers those songs um, a few levels down for us as men to be able to sing. Um, because that's, that's a cool thing for us to do as well, to get to be a part of. So all those little comments, just some things to keep in mind. Um, changes this week, one of the, um, uh, here's what's wild. I, I went a little long in the first service, and you're seeing why right now, but the, uh, went long, a little bit long in the first service, but um, man, when I was, uh, this was, this Sunday was supposed to wrap up John chapter six, and as I got into it, there were like four main teachable moments, and I always try to keep a sermon to one or two and so um, this, we are, we're adding a week. And so this is, this is in, uh, next week, Lord willing, we will finish John 6. Then we'll jump into John 7. And I, just, just to give you a, a little teaser trailer here, um, starting in the beginning of John 7, um, at that for a couple of weeks at least, um, John Keeling is going to join me on stage. And we're going to teach through the feasts and festivals of the Jewish faith. Um, because, man, they're all through the book of John, and we've already kind of skimmed over a couple of them and realizing we cannot do the book of John justice. We cannot create the context, really, without at least a, at least a couple of weeks of that, of really digging into what are these feasts and festivals. So when it begins John chapter 7, it says Jesus was going to the feast. What does that mean? And so we're going to be looking into that. And if you don't know to be excited uh, about having John Keeling on stage here with me, then let me just tell you, you should be excited that John's going to be on stage here with me, and that's going to be um, a ton of fun. So, um, so with that in mind, let's jump into John 6 so that we can get there. Um, John 6, starting in verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Um, now, notice already, bam, right there, something to keep in mind. This was not some secret, hidden, shadowy cult. This early Christianity, it's not what it was. Jesus didn't, um, um, uh, in one of the podcasts in a debate with an atheist, the atheist um, brought this point to me, saying like that the early Christianity was like Jim Jones' cult type of compound. Jim Jones is the guy who, who bought some property down, I think it was in Bolivia, but down in South Central America, and had these big walls and, and essentially tortured people to believe in what he said that he should, they should believe in. And it was an awful, awful situation. And, uh, and, and what struck me, and, and I didn't know enough about Jim Jones to respond. I was like, um, which is what I say to atheists when I don't know is, I don't, I don't know how to refute that. I don't know enough about Jim Jones to, to know what to say back. So I'll do his research the next time. Um, and let me just tell you, Jim Jones and that whole cult movement and Jesus Christ really have, um, I mean, I'm going to go with nothing in common. It was stunning how little there was to make any connection. Both, their names both started with J. I did notice that. Um, beyond that, there just wasn't a whole, lot to, um, a whole lot to go with. Notice Jesus is teaching some of the hardest teaching that he gives, some of the most offensive teaching that he gives, some of the most um, um, countercultural teaching that he gives. And does he, has he bought some property in Central America to wall this off and to teach just a handful of people who will listen to him? No, he is teaching it in a city, in the synagogue. There's nothing secretive or, or, or shameful about this. Jesus is having an intellectual and spiritual and theological debate and discussion with the leaders, with the university professors of his time and the common man. And so Jesus is engaging with them on, in their turf, and that's where he's doing it. In fact, let me, I, I'd love to um, give you as much context as possible so that you can create the picture. As you picture Jesus having these conversations, I want you to picture it in this, what this synagogue looks like. So let's, I'm going to show you a few things. So here's, here's what the synagogue looks like now when we go next 
summer, Lord willing, we'll go in June of 2019 back to Israel. This is in, Cap in Capernaum. Um, that's what the synagogue looks like now. So this is just outside of the synagogue. That one is a little bit older. Go back one shot. Um, <clears throat> so this is a little bit, this one's from the 300s AD, not this is not the one Jesus. It's built directly on top of the one Jesus would have taught in, which I'll show you what it probably would have looked like in a second. But I want you to see this. Go ahead. Now you can go to the next one. So this is just outside of that area teaching. That's the, that's the Sea of Galilee. And so this would have been a beautiful setting. Jesus is in this, is in this synagogue, and they're, they're just off the coast. In fact, go ahead to the next one. This is what the synagogue would have looked like in Jesus' day. Very simple. It had a big old sunroof in the top um, because, so that you could see inside. There's no electric lighting, obviously, back then. But then in order to, this is where the people sat. They sat in under these, and then the teacher would have been right up in there. So the teacher right there, people on the side. Um, and then all the important stored stuff was stored back there. And then so you'd come out and, and taught. And that's probably where Jesus was is that Jesus would have been up here teaching. We know he did that sometimes. In this case, it doesn't make it clear that he's teaching the whole synagogue versus just being in it. So it may have just been a, a gathering where he's there teaching, just in the shade or whatever, we don't know. Um, but it may have even been teaching from this position. Um, he was a religious leader and was accepted as such, um, etc. But, but even to get a better picture, so this is the kind of building. Now the next one. This is Capernaum um, today. So there is the synagogue right there. This is the Sea of Galilee. There's a synagogue. So again, Sea of Galilee synagogue. Um, this would not have been there. That's a Roman Catholic church built over the, uh, the traditional house of Peter. And so that's allegedly where the Apostle Peter's house was. The, the Sea of Galilee, we know, was at least 30 or 40 feet higher and so probably would have been right up to about here. So again, this would have been a really sweet, beautiful setting. Here we are in the morning. Um, it's still, we've been here for five weeks. Jesus, this, this period, John 6 only takes 12 hours. And so, um, and so that would have been right there teaching, uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is explaining these, to these people. So it creates this odd um, contradiction of, hey, this beautiful setting right here by the Sea of Galilee, overlooking as the, with the sun coming up and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is teaching about eating his body and drinking his blood. So you've had this, this beautiful setting with this shocking teaching mixed together. These people had been fed the day before by Jesus, thousands and thousands of them with just a few loaves and fish. They had come to follow him to find breakfast, and he's not giving them breakfast. Instead, he's teaching them this stuff that is very, very offensive to them. You're going to see that. That's one of the two big teachable things that struck me. When many of the disciples heard the teaching, they said, this is a hard saying who can listen to it. Now, this doesn't just mean the 12. Disciples here just means followers. Um, it, it's, there's different types of, of disciples. There's different type of followers. There, there are people who follow just because um, they're kind of curious or they don't know what's going on or they want to see a show or, in this case, they want free breakfast. Um, there are others who are, who are they, they, they get it, they believe it, but then there are others who are committed, and we're going to see that play out over these two weeks. Um, so the larger concept here. But here's what they say. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? We don't like this. We don't prefer this. This teaching is offensive to us. We don't like the way it sounds. We don't like what you're saying. It's difficult to accept. So what's going to happen is they're going to argue for a bit and then they're going to walk away. Now, this is one of those great moments when, it, again, it strikes me. Anytime somebody refers to the Bible as an outdated book, 
I think, right. Because we've come so far from the day when we don't care whether something is true, we just care whether it offends us. Aren't you glad we no longer have to wrestle with that That is an issue? It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. What matters is do I like it? Do I prefer it? Am, do I, do I, is this something that offends me or bothers me? Well, if it is, and I don't want to hear it. I'm just going to shut you down. We're not going to let you talk about it because I don't care if it's true or not, but it bothers me. It offends me. So, yeah, we've come a long way, right, in 2,000 years. That's not something we wrestle with. It, this, is, this was this first teachable thing that I wanted to camp out on for a minute. It really comes down to this. Um, as we were talking about this, Redfern a couple weeks said, a couple weeks ago said, it really comes down to this. I just don't want the stuff that I don't want. I don't like this teaching, so I don't want it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to wrestle with it. I don't care if it's true or not. I just don't want to deal with it. And that's what these people are doing. We don't like this teaching. This is hard teaching. How, how are we supposed to accept this? Here, this is a crisis for us as a, as a culture and as a community and even in the church. That, that we, now see, we now see truth as more of a mixtape. You have that? So hold that. Just let that, let that just, for the people of my generation, this has meaning. But for the rest of you, I'm going to have to explain this. <laughs> so here's what we did. Back in the day, if you can imagine, there was a day, there was a day when, when you didn't, couldn't buy just an individual song. Okay? You had to buy the whole tape. No matter how bad the tape was, if there was one song you wanted on it, you had to buy the whole tape. And, and, and it was just a huge waste. And so I want you to catch, like, it's not even that, this is going to be tough for some of you guys, it's not even that you could just have to go like, well, what's the big deal? You get to the end of the song, you just press back, and it automatically plays it again. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> See, you had to rewind all the way back to the beginning. And if it wasn't the first song, and sometimes it wasn't, there was no automatic stop. It just rewound to you, and you'd forget and be like, oh, dadgummit. And then you have to listen to some other songs you didn't. So here's what we would do. We created this incredible invention that was two tape players built into one machine, okay? Some of you are going to recognize this movement, already. So what you would do is you would put the song that you liked in one side, and you'd put a blank tape, they sold these, in the, in the other side. So remember this movement? Two, two fingers and one finger, like, <laughs> right? Yes. All the young people are like, why are they laughing? Ha, 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 ha. See, because you had to plus play, play and record in order to record. That was the, and the tapes had little plastic pieces on them to catch you to, from recording over them that you had to break off if you wanted to record sometimes. So, so you, would, you would do, and, and by the way, then you had to sit and listen because then you also had to press stop at the exact right moment at the end of the song. Then you'd switch out and put in a different tape. And if you were a good boyfriend, you cranked out a couple of these a year for your girlfriend of good romantic <laughs> Mix, mix, I know it, I know it, a good romantic mix songs. Um, I have been married long enough, this is how it tells you how old I am, kiddos, is that um, I have a couple of mixtapes from Ginger. That's right, that's, that's how long we've been married, is that we were long enough that during our dating time, we did mixtapes for each other. So this is a, now here's the problem, now the analogy over, what we do as a culture, because now we can buy just one song at a time, and we can create our playlist, and we can, all our preferences, and we can, that now we're doing that with truth. They were saying, I don't like this truth, I don't like truth track two through nine, I only like truth track one, so I'm going to create my own little religion, and it's going to be made up of the truths that I like. It's going to be made up of the truths that make me happy. It's going to be made of the truths that I'm not offended by. That's going to be my new religion. This is what's happening to the church in America. Ameri this has happened to America. 
That's not happening. It's done. This is what's happening now in the church in America. And that's why we're seeing churches collapse very often under the weight of trying to be culturally relevant by changing out the mixtape that people will not be offended by versus teaching Scripture um, to the best we can as it is teaching what Jesus is teaching. Jesus, you will notice, did not go, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was going to offend all of you. Let me take that back. I mean, let's, let me pull back a little bit from that because uh, here's the thing. It, it, so uh, keep in mind, Christianity is, an, as I said a minute ago, is an evidence-based faith. It is a rational faith. It's why we have books like the book of John. Understand that the word belief that we've been focusing on a little bit, this faith word, that we're the, the verb, you must faith in me, the word there also can mean persuaded. You must be persuaded by me. That's what Jesus is, is teaching. This is not anti-intellectualism. By faith, we don't mean a warm feeling in your bosom. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a, a conviction of the truth of something. I feel comfortable saying this. If it's not true, the, the Bible will never command you to believe something that isn't true. It is not part of the Christian faith to believe things that aren't true. The things that we know aren't true, we're not required to believe those. Now understand, we can be wrong. That happens all the time. But the book of John, literally, John is making a case. That's the purpose of the book of John. And when we get to the end, John's going to say, this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and, and, put, and, and believing in him have eternal life. So he's, made a, he's making a case, a reasonable, rational argument for who Christ is and that you should believe in him. It's an evidence-based book, an evidence-based faith. So we're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks, especially when we get to John 8 and try to talk about the sophisticated understanding of truth and, and who God is. But I want you to catch, this is a core tenet. This is a core muscle of Christian worldview is this. Truth is absolute. Now that should be a core, faith, a core belief of all humans. Let me show you why. So going to Texas A&M in 1992... And uh, yeah, right. so going to A and M in '92, and so having this, um, um, having this professor of religion, um, I think it was the philosophy of religion, because psychology of religion was totally different. But this philosophy of religion class, sitting down on the first day, and the professor saying, "All right, so I don't know how to teach you people if you don't have basic understandings. So let's start with a basic understanding. How many of you believe that truth?" is absolute. So the way he said it was, if you do not believe the truth is absolute, please raise your hand. And in 1992 at Texas A&M, half the class raised their hand and said, truth is not absolute. And the professor said, okay, is there anybody who's willing to discuss that with me? And of course, day one at a freshman level class, all but one or two hands go down. No one wants to talk to the professor, but there was a couple um, gutsy enough to do it. And the professor said, okay, um, let's make sure we're on the same page. By truth, we mean something that is externally, objectively true. Here's what I mean. If you, whether you know it, like it, or believe it, it would still be true. And the student said, yes, sir, I agree with that definition. And the professor said, okay, do you believe there ever has been truth that's absolute? Did, did, did the philosophers of old, Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, these guys, or maybe the, maybe the, the, the uh, religious leaders of the past, Muhammad or Buddha or Jesus Christ, did any of them have an absolute truth? And the student said, no, sir, I don't believe any of them did. And he goes, so you don't believe we have any now? All that we've got going on, none. No, sir, none. 
Do you believe that maybe in the future, artificial intelligence, supercomputers, that there will come a day when we uncover an absolute truth? And the student said, no, sir, I don't believe we ever will. And the professor said, but don't you see that that's one? That is an absolute truth to make the statement, there are, never have been, and never will be an absolute truth, is a statement of absolute truth. You cannot rationally hold the view there are no absolute truths because you're claiming an absolute truth when you say it. If you're right, by definition, you're wrong. You don't want to be there. You don't want to hold the belief that by believing it means you're wrong. If there are no absolute truths and you know that absolutely to be true, you have a problem. As a theologian, it troubles me that the vast majority of Americans believe the truth is not absolute. I will tell you, as a psychologist, it terrifies me that most Americans believe something that is delusional to believe. You're not allowed to be rational and believe that there are no absolute truths. You don't get to do that. By definition, they must exist. Jesus is not backing off of things that we aren't comfortable with if they're true they're still true. That's hard for us because we want to create a God in our image, not the other way around. We're not comfortable with this core muscle. Most of us don't exercise it very often, so it's weak. We end up going with what we prefer or what makes us comfortable rather than what he's, what he's teaching us or what he's telling us. Um, again, I'm going to come back to this in chapter 8 more in detail as we talk about this, but um, just listening to Dr. J.P. Moreland a little bit this week, he pointed out, that 117 of the 119 of the first universities founded in the United States were founded to train people to promote the gospel. This is during the 17 and early 1800s. At that time, listen to this, Christianity was understood as a rational, evidence-based faith, and better education would lead to stronger faith. Many of the Ivy League universities, the universities we look to now for intellectual elitism, were founded as seminaries, or at least as things meant to defend and train people in the understanding of the gospel. Um, J.P. Moreland, who went to USC, um, said that at USC there are statues of the Methodist circuit riders that the university was founded by. Knew that about USC? Founded by the Methodists, right? Who, who they, the statues look down across the university in a, to make sure that nothing but the gospel is ever taught at USC. Oops. That's why they're statues. Science, philosophy, and education in general were considered the strongest allies of the faith. They still are, but we've accepted the lie and perpetuated now the lie that facts and truth are somehow enemies of faith. It's bad enough when the secular world wants to take that stance. I would say, by God, do not let us ever buy into that lie. Don't let us buy into the lie that somehow truth and faith are competition, are, are contradictory concepts. Instead, exactly the opposite, that we would say, listen, if, you don't, if it's not true, don't believe it. You put your faith in Christ because he is truth, exactly for the fact that he is truth and that his claims are true. That's what we believe. Think about it this way. If a talk show host, I, I say Oprah, but I don't even know if she does talk shows. It tells you how much I know about talk shows, but... So if someone like some talk show host like Oprah decides to do a show on malaria or schizophrenia 
What does she do? She brings on an expert, right? Dr. So-and-so, who's a, who's, who knows all about malaria. She brings in the world's expert on schizophrenia. If she decides to teach, if she decides to have a, a, a uh, which she has done multiple times, if she decides to have an episode on theology or, or just religion or God, you know what she does? She talks. And she walks out into the audience with a microphone. Because we've come to accept as a culture that though there are right and wrong answers, and therefore you need an expert when it comes to medical opinions, when it comes to God, everybody's opinion is equally valid. There's no such thing as an expert about God. There's no such thing as someone who knows more or less than anybody else. We've come to accept that as a culture rather than, which was true just a very short period of time ago, to understand this is a rational faith. And you need to be trained in it. And you need to understand it. And if you're going to dig into Scripture, you don't get to have an unsophisticated understanding of it. You've got to dig in and study. That's what we're dealing with. That's where we are as a church. And it's important that we as a church continue, the church, continue to take a strong stance on saying there are things that are true, whether we know it or like it or believe it, whether we're comfortable with it or offended by it. The question we should be asking is, is it true, not whether I'm offended by it? All right. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, let's talk about grumbling here. Uh, man, there is a long and illustrious history of God followers grumbling, isn't it? Man, we are good at grumbling. We have taken that, that stuff, that legacy seriously. But, but as Bible students, so when you hear the word grumbling, what immediately, what section of the Bible do you immediately can think about? Right, the Exodus and under Moses. Good. So Exodus 15, 24, the people grumbled. Now here's the irony. What were, they, what were they grumbling about back then again? Typically, food and water. Again, a lot of growth in this stuff. Um, Exodus 15, 24, they grumbled about what shall we drink? 16, 2, what about we're hungry? 17, 3, water again. Um, 14, 2, they're grumbling because they're afraid of their enemies. 14, 29, they're mad because God has put down a rebellion. Um, of the called Korah's Rebellion. This is normal for us. We grumble. We hear something we don't like. We're offended by it. We don't want to hear it, so we grumble. This isn't the way I grew up with it, so we grumble. It's, it's different than what we prefer, so we grumble. That's what we talk about regularly. We remi I remind you, listen, listen to the music or the podcast or the sermons, whatever you want to, for about 165 uh, hours a week. But for about three of those hours... We're going to come together in community, and we're going to serve together as we are led to serve. We're going to learn together as we are led to learn, and we're going to worship and sing and give together in the way we are led to do so. Probably none of you will get a call from John Redfern this week asking you which songs you want um, next Sunday. Pro I, by the way, I don't get that call either. Um, that is, John is looking at what we're teaching, and he's, he's dealing with the materials that we're going over, and he's praying and thinking about this and using his expertise to bring together the songs um, that say this will lead us at the, from the head to the heart to the gut level in understanding what God is trying to teach us. That's the case. Okay, sometimes John asks me what songs I want to do. Not often though. So here, here we have in this teaching, for example, Jesus is foreshadowing the broken body and they don't like it. He has been going to be beaten viciously, whipped essentially to death, and nailed to cross posts and left there to die. So you'll know. 
with this. If you've not seen the, the versions of the movies or whatever that have been done correctly, there would have been flesh and blood everywhere at the trial and beating and crucifixion of Jesus. Pieces of him would have been torn all over wherever it was they were doing this. He, he is exactly describing this. This humiliation, the idea of God being torn apart like pieces of bread. His, his, his body being torn apart like bread would be torn apart. His blood being splashed around like some kind of spilled wine. They found this offensive. To this day they do. The Jews, and even more so the, the Muslims, find it offensive, deeply offensive, the idea that God would be humiliated this way. That God would be humiliated by dying. God doesn't die. God doesn't serve. He is served. Christ is revealing himself as the God who serves, as the one who suffers. They may have not seen it coming, but they could have. Isaiah prophesied it about the man of sorrows in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are made whole. But it's teaching is hard to listen to, even for us still today a little bit. It's hard to accept. It's not the truth we want. Jesus says, then what, would you, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, I, I, wasn't, I read this and I'm like, that feels like a non sequitur to me. I don't understand this verse stuck in the middle of this, this sentence stuck in the middle of this. So I, I, as looking at different opinions, it began to make sense. It may just be, will you believe if you see this? So if you see me ascend to heaven, then would you believe? Is that the trick I've got to pull for you? It may have even been, you think this is hard to believe? Then try to imagine that if I ascended into heaven, what would you do with that? How would you handle that? That would be even more challenging for you. But I think maybe best is this. You refuse to believe me when I say that I came down from heaven. Will you believe me if you see me ascend up to heaven? Would you still be grumbling under those conditions? Would you accept my authority then? And this is not just hypothetical. They think it is probably. It's not hypothetical in Acts 1-9. So the ascension is referenced in multiple gospels. But in Acts 1-9 is when we get the narrative of it happening. And then he said these things. They were looking upon him. He was lifted up in a cloud. Took him out of their sight. He did it. He ascended. It's of interest to me, by the way. This struck me. I'd never noticed this before. Only the people who stick around through this teaching of John 6, only they are allowed to be there when he ascends years later. Those are the ones who are still there when he does ascend into heaven. They did it, and they get it. Between that and the power of the Holy Spirit, they did believe it, and they did accept it, all of it, and they began to teach it, and that was what Christianity became. Christianity came from that handful of people who stuck through John 6, and we're still there in Acts 1. And they got to experience that. The Spirit gives life. Verse 63. This is the second kind of main teachable thing. It's the Spirit who gives life. And the flesh is no help at all. In the first service I referenced that this would be a cool tattoo. It would be an ironic tattoo. But it still would be a cool tattoo. The Spirit gives life. Notice John 5.21. Just last chapter. For the Father raised the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. We just read the Spirit gives life, the Father gives life, the Son gives life. This is the triune God who gives life. This is God, three and one, 
And that is where life is found in God. If you think you're finding life somewhere else, you really haven't found it yet. You may think you have. You may have found evidence of it, but it's not really it. You may have a glass of water, but not a spring welling up in you. This idea, how about this, that the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is an interesting word. So let's talk about this for just a second. As we get into chapter 8 in a few weeks and are required really to dig into having a healthy, right, and even as I've used this word, sophisticated understanding, a wise understanding of Scripture, um, one of the things that you have to learn about Scripture, about the Bible, is that it's not a textbook. Um, A lot of us read it as though it's a textbook put together by a group of editors, and then what they do is they go through and they bold certain words and have a glossary at the end, right? You guys, do they still do that? Good, making sure that's not like a mixtape reference that I have to explain. Okay, so they still, have, they still have glossaries at the end of textbooks with little bold words in the middle. The Bible's not like that, and sometimes you can get really confused because you see a word someplace, and you see that same word someplace else, and you think it has the same definition. And it doesn't always. You have to be a better student of the Bible than that. And the word flesh is one of those words. It doesn't always mean the same thing every time you read it. It should be pretty clear. So we see the word flesh, what's being talked about here. Here's some examples of things that the flesh can mean. It can just mean meat. Literally, just like carnivore, meat. Um, Do not eat flesh with blood in it, for example. Sarks in the Greek, meat. Um, Sarks is Greek, right? Okay, good. All of a sudden, I got that doomed feeling of like, that one's Hebrew. No, it's me. It's Greek. I was right. Sarks is the Greek one. Do not eat flesh with blood in it. Physical, it can just mean a physical person. The, the physical aspect of your identity, as in the, the identity of you that isn't spiritual, the non-spiritual identity of you. For example, the two become one flesh, like in marriage. What is born of flesh is flesh. Or the word became flesh and dwelt among men. The physical person is what's being talked about, as in not the spiritual person. It can mean all material life, all created material life, like be silent all flesh before the Lord, or um, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Those are very different meanings in different settings. Maybe the one we're most comfortable with is some version of this. It is the limitation inherent in being a created physical person. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And Christian, different Christian scholars take different stances on this, on to just how bad the flesh is versus how neutral the flesh is. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it just a thing? So for the, our sake of the study of the book of John, when you're going through it, typically in John, the key one seems to be this, the limitation of the flesh, the fact that you have taken on flesh, that we have a flesh. There's a limit to how much life the flesh can offer. It can only take you so far. What kind of life can it give you? You can feed the flesh like manna did, and then, what? You die. The flesh is going to die. Flesh is about staying alive. The spirit is about life. They're two kind of different concepts. Let me try to explain this a little more deeply here for some of you. Um, when it comes to eternal life, the meaning of life, not just staying alive, but abundant, transcendent life, Jesus says the flesh is no help. 
It offers you no assistance for that. None. The flesh won't provide that. Breakfast will keep you alive. It will not give you life, abundant, eternal, forever. Now, listen, one of the things that, that's significant in, in this church, and I think in many churches now, is that there's not this pretense somehow that the guy on stage is the, is the super Christian. And you guys know that that's not the case. Those of you who know me well really know it's not the case. I'm not some super Christian. I have the same things that you do, the same struggles that you do. Now, here's the thing that's important is to understand that the joys of the flesh are not necessarily evil. We can get off on that teaching if we're not careful. There are good things that God has given us as provisions in a healthy way for the flesh. <coughs> we like those things. Um, I revel in the feel of my wife's skin. That is a joy of the flesh that God gives. And the feeling of her nails on my skin. I like that. Amen? All right, so um, I like a good donut, especially a warm one, right? There's something pleasing about the flesh in eating a good donut or fresh seafood, right? Or an excellent sauce. Some of you know about my addiction to sauce. Or, or the smell of a campfire or to be mesmerized with the flames or the feeling of a good mattress, these are all good things that God, they're joys of the flesh. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not evil to enjoy the provisions of God for our flesh. Keep in mind, Jesus is not feeding them breakfast, but he did feed them dinner just 12 hours before. It's obviously not evil for, to accept the provisions of God for our flesh. That's allowed, that's acceptable. Those are good things. What the apostle Paul warns us against Especially if you want to study the flesh, you got to go to the Apostle Paul in Romans like 6, 7, 8. In that area, <clears throat> understand that what the Apostle Paul is going to warn you against is the fact that the flesh is never, never done. The flesh is never satisfied. It always wants more. If four donut holes are good, then eight would be better, and 12 would be magnificent, and 16 would be awesome, right? There's no end. Like more and more that, that the, the flesh, they become the lusts of the flesh, that we want to own it and possess it and be in charge of it. We want it to be our good gifts to ourselves, not God's gift to us. This is different. That's, that's what the flesh we deal with. It is that part of us. It is that weak part of us, at least weak and prone to wander, prone to be self-serving, prone to be demanding, prone to be selfish and childish and infantile and adolescent. We demand them from other people. We feel entitled to them from other people. You're supposed to give me this. My flesh wants this. Why are you failing me in this? And we turn to these things of the flesh instead of God. We idolize them by seeking them with all of our money and all of our time and all of our energy. And that's where we're off base every time. So enjoying a good gift from God, that's not evil. Even if it is a joy of the flesh. Whatever the thing is that you love, that's, that can be fine. But where we get off is when we begin to seek them at the expense of seeking life. Either in rebellion or in self-satisfaction in ways that are inappropriate. thought it was worth mentioning and I knew that was going to take enough time. That's, and sure enough it has. There are thousands of little things that make our brains fire off the right chemicals. And many of them are good things. A parent's safe touch creates healthy growth in their children. We know that. That is a joy of the flesh. 
Camaraderie is built over grilling something over a campfire. That is a joy of the flesh. Intimacy is created when we explore life together physically. That is a, a, a good gift of God, a joy of the flesh. There's so many of these. It is a sign of God's love for us that he has filled the world with these. And yet, any of them can become our addiction to where we begin to seek them and build our identities on them rather than to seek God. When it comes to life, the spiritual life that we really crave, the peaceful, deeper, transcendent, true, eternal purpose and value, the flesh is no help at all. That's the teaching that Jesus is giving us. John, 5, John 3, back way back in John 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh and flesh, that which is born of the Spirit, is spirit. Only through the Spirit can you enter eternal life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus says here in 63, it's 663, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there's some of you who do not believe. As we talked about this, John, John said, do you, think, do you think Jesus spoke these words with tears in his eyes? That here he is pouring out his heart and soul, talking about his own broken and bleeding body and how this is going to be a provision for people to believe in him. And he's saying, and yet some of you, you very people who have followed me all the way across the Sea of Galilee, you will not believe. We have no excuse. They are hearing these from the very mouth of God. And we're hearing them from Scripture itself. There's no excuse. Do we want a life with more than merely existence? more than just happy platitudes, more than just fun little proverbs. We need to seek first his kingdom and let him take care of the needs of the flesh. We need to invest in heaven where the things that destroy fleshly things cannot touch them. This is the principle. We're going to wrap up on this. The principle is seeking life in God who gives it rather than investing our whole existence into the temporary aspects of just being alive, but instead to seek life. Life abundant. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Lori Redfern sent me an email saying, um, you ought to check out Isaiah 55, how, how it has overlapped with this teaching. So jumping back and looking at it, I want to take these few verses from, from Isaiah 55 and have them be our invitation today. So that <clears throat> when we do an, uh, the altar call or the invitation or whatever, whatever terminology you call it, this is, this is an opportunity to respond. My prayer is that you're doing that well, no matter where you do it. That even if you're, if you're listening to this on a podcast or something, that there is a time that you take to, to consider what God is teaching us in our own lives. What is God teaching us? And so today, as, I, I'm gonna, as we read through this, this, these few verses as a reminder, if you're thirsty, water will quench your thirst for a little while, but then you'll have to drink again. But if you're thirsty, if you're hungry and thirsting for the righteousness that God has to offer, for the eternal life that Christ is giving, that the Spirit wants to give us, then then that's what you're coming for, that you would say, I, I come to that. If you're looking for a community of believers and you've already talked to people and you say, this is, this is where I want to try to live out what it means to live church, then if you've already talked to the, the, the Welcome Home team, great, you can come and join. If you haven't, you don't know what I'm talking about and you want to learn more about that, you can come tell me and we'll, we'll have that conversation too. But So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to stand. I'm going to read these verses and then... Um, Hand it over to John as you consider what the Spirit is leading you to. Isaiah 55. Almighty God says to us through the prophet Isaiah, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. 
He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. I delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, my sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness for the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. What we need, we think we're hungry and thirsty, and maybe we are and we need food, that's fine. What we really need is a covenant with Almighty God like the one he gave with David to be our God, for us to be his people. That's what we need and to make our souls healed and complete. So, John, lead us.